Welcome to the Prioritizing Prevention Translating Science to Practice podcast. Our goal is to prioritize prevention conversations that matter. Our topic for today is promoting behavioral health equity with accountable spaces with special guest Elise Ahinkura. Now here's our host, Holly Raffle. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion podcast, Prioritizing Prevention, Translating Science to Practice. My name is Holly Raffle, the Faculty Director of the Center, and I am pleased to welcome this episode's guest, Elise Ahinkara. Elise is an award-winning diversity, equity, and inclusion strategist and speaker. As the founder and principal inclusion strategist of Inclusion Factor, Elise uses data-driven strategies to show how an inclusive workplace increases talent retention, employee engagement, team performance, and ultimately, the bottom line. Based in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, her corporate and community clients take her all across Canada and the U.S., This month, the center is focusing on behavioral health equity, and I'm so excited to share a conversation with Elise about inclusion strategies that work in the prevention field. As our listeners know, on this podcast, our bottom line is prevention. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us, Elise. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into our content, I think it's important for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you as a person. In your 15-year career, you've worked in progressively senior roles in communications, marketing, stakeholder engagement, strategic planning, and DEI for public and private sector organizations. You then created Inclusion Factor to create measurable strategies and practical tactics to enhance DEI for a variety of clients, from corporate organizations, higher education, nonprofits, professional associations, and even government agencies. You are also hard at work with your nonprofit, Hashtag She Meets, which has grown into a network of more than 7,000 Black, Indigenous, and racialized entrepreneurs who identify as women across Canada who are seeking mentoring and community. You have a broad reach and a deep impact in your work, and I am so excited for our colleagues here in Ohio to meet you. Biography aside, our listeners would love to hear more about you. So when you started Inclusion Factor, what was your why? When I started Inclusion Factor, initially, the intention or the reason why I did it, it was really driven from a self uh, perspective, but from something kind of personal to myself. Uh, I was really trying to translate my experiences working in corporate, working in nonprofit, education, government, whatever it may be, my experiences around exclusion and inclusion. I was really trying to be a, a change maker in that sense to make sure that anything that I've experienced of things that have made me feel respected, valued, and heard, that I could try to create a framework around it so that way organizations can replicate it. Or on the flip side, when I felt excluded, where I felt tokenized, advising what were the aspects or the things that happened in that experience so that way organizations, again, could avoid that. Um, but now it's evolved into something much bigger than myself, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, Today, my why is really teaching organizations how to maximize their talents, potential, innovation threshold to make sure that every person in the organization can contribute, innovate, thrive, and be respected, valued, and heard. And and that drives me in times especially where uh, I could feel like my energy is really depleted. That's really my why, creating spaces where people can choose how much they want to bring of themselves into that space 
And regardless of what they show up as, they're respected, valued, and heard. Well, thank you so much for your commitment to creating this spaces. About how long has it been since you started Inclusion Factor? I started it in 2017, but I had been in kind of unofficial roles around uh, DEI since about 2004. But 2017 is when I really framed up the, the business structure around what I've been doing. So you're coming up on your 10-year anniversary here in a couple of years. So how have you seen changes in, you know, why people come to you for consulting services over time? What I've noticed is that organizations, when I initially was doing this work, they were doing it because they realized it was the right thing to do. They didn't really have any data to understand what's the impact of this. Um, what are the outcomes that could be achieved when we get this right? Now, when I have organizations reach out to me, what I love to hear, and usually it's my litmus test of whether I want to partner with your organization or not, is that you understand that not only is it the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do from a talent retention standpoint. It's a smart thing to do of making sure you reflect the audiences you serve in your organization. It's a smart thing to do if you want to make sure that you're maximizing innovation based on the talent that you have. It's a smart thing to do if you want to make sure that you are uh, building an employer brand around this and having leadership capabilities and insights and skill sets that are able to really manage today's workforce, not yesterday's workforce. And that's what I've seen change, really the why of an organization approaching me. That's amazing because it really has been less than 10 years. And that seems like a huge um, flip of reasons why people are coming. Why do you think that's the case? I think it's the amplification of DEI based on the global anti-racism movement that happened in the summer of 2020 organizations had a wake-up call, whether they were ready or not, to understand that their teammates, their talents, are expecting more from them when they come into a workplace. And so I think if there's one kind of element or kind of a situation where that's become much more amplified, I would definitely identify it to that global anti-racism movement that made people realize beyond race, what are other identities that we need to be mindful of to make sure that we're not reacting, but we're preparing to what our employees need within the workplace? Thank you so much for that thoughtful reflection. And in reading more about you and, and reading your bio and reviewing it, I'm curious, which came first, Inclusion Factor or hashtag she meets? So Inclusion Factor came first. I had some bumps and bruises with entrepreneurship and building ideas into reality like most entrepreneurs. What I did notice, what, though, was that there were certain experiences as an entrepreneur that were quite unique to me versus uh, my male counterparts or, let's say, my female counterparts that didn't have to deal with race as a part of their identity. Uh, I just realized there's so much resources as well as barriers that exist for women like me or any equity-deserving uh, community entrepreneur. And so I just thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if there's a centralized space for one, we could talk about these experiences so you realize it's not an individual experience, it's a systemic experience. So that way it alleviates that guilt that you feel that, man, I'm not able to raise as much capital as my other colleague that looks different than me. Maybe it's a me thing. You know, we've seen time and time again from data, systems, whatever it may be, that this seems to be a systemic issue, not an individual issue. To being able to create access to capital, being able to create access to mentorship, um, being able to just create different ideation tools or entrepreneurship resources. So that way it's not as hard 
um, as someone as myself had to deal with when it came to building the inclusion factor idea into the inclusion factor business that you see today. Absolutely. It's interesting because you hear folks, you know, turn to entrepreneurship when they are in an environment or a system that's not built for them. And so they go to build a system for themselves. And then to hear that entrepreneurship still has those same systems, right, that are influencing um, creating that space where people can come and have mentorship and community around this idea of what it means to be a mentor and what the mentorship experience is when you are a Black, Indigenous, or racialized entrepreneur um, really makes sense. Yes, it's um, it's hard to be able to somehow escape the barriers or the inequities that occur when you are an equity-deserving community member, whether you're an employee or an entrepreneur. It's just how do we make sure that those resources, that mentorship and that community is available to somebody regardless of the path they take so that way they realize, again, there's resources available, there's lived experiences that are similar to yours, so it's not an individualistic uh, experience, it's systemic. And what are some tools to be able to alleviate those barriers that we statistically see time and time again, whether you're a racialized, indigenous persons with disabilities, LGBTQ2S+, uh, whatever it may be, when you have those identities and you pursue either entrepreneurship or uh, employee-based uh, experiences. Absolutely. And it's actually the tools you've created is what led me to find you and to um, be curious and just really want to have a conversation with you. I saw your article posted on Medium that was titled, Safe and brave spaces don't work and what you can do instead. And to our listeners out there, we will link this article in our show notes for you. We know lots of you are out getting your daily exercise. Some of you are driving. No worries. Uh, we'll make sure that we have this in the show notes for you. And our listeners, whether they are prevention professionals or interested others, spend a lot of time in community spaces and also creating space for communities to create the change they want or need to see uh, around behavioral health. So can you share with us the differences you see between safe, brave, and accountable spaces? So whenever an organization or even a community group are trying to bring people together in order to discuss DEI topics, or just to learn about each other's lived experiences, you'll usually hear the terms of, we're gonna create a safe or a brave space so that way we can learn from each other to help advance inclusion and equity within our workforce, within our community, whatever it may be. And I heard this time and time again, and it would irk me. Every single time I'd hear it. And I had to kind of do some self-reflection myself to say, why am I so triggered and kind of perturbed whenever I hear those terms? And so I want to break down kind of what's the difference between safe, brave, and accountable spaces and why those first two spaces that I mentioned are quite problematic, even though we have well-meaning intentions behind it. So a safe space is a place with which, you know, people could feel confident that when they um, go into these discussions, these spaces, that when we talk about discrimination, when we talk about racism, harassment, whatever it may be, um, that it's a safe space for them to learn. That, you know, there's not going to be any triggers. There's not going to be any traumas. We're just going to listen to each other and exchange information and ideas. Well, you know, it sounds magical. It sounds like there, there might be snacks there, for goodness sake. Sure, let's go. Now, the problem with that is that uh, that isn't conducive to learning. I myself, I'm a lifelong learner. 
I know for a fact the things that are most impactful for me are things that I've kind of learned as of late have never been in my comfort zone. It usually required me to kind of get out of my comfort zone, realize that there's another ideology, another perspective out there, and to absorb that perspective. You can't really learn uh, as impactful. You can't learn in a really impactful way when you're prioritizing safety and comfort. It's kind of counterproductive, to be honest. And it, it's impossible to guarantee because we can't predict what people's behaviors or triggers are. And I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here. We know that if I talk about something that's probably one of the most traumatic experiences in my life around exclusion, discrimination, or harassment, I'm not going to be in a safe space because I'm bringing up something highly traumatic for myself in order to benefit others to learn. So right then and there, there feels to be a bit of a disproportionate balance of come in, share your most traumatic experiences so we can learn. Isn't there another way for us to facilitate learning without burdening other people to reveal the most, again, visceral, traumatic experiences in their life in order for others to benefit? Last but not least, safety is very impossible to promise. I work with a number of different local law agencies even national law agencies, and their core focus is safety. And they would never come out and say, you know, as Ohio police, we're going to guarantee that 100% this community is going to be safe. No incidences whatsoever. We promise you. It's impossible to do because we just can't mitigate that much risk. And so if we know that organizations, that their core focus is making us safe, if they can't guarantee that, what makes me think a workplace or an organization could do so? And so it's just, it's just riddled with, even though it comes with well-meaning intentions, you can't deliver that promise. Now, when we get into brave spaces, it's asking or individuals that already carry so much bravery, navigating everyday systems, whether it's in universities, post-secondary educational institutions, law systems, corporate systems, healthcare systems, we see time and time again that there is statistical data that demonstrates that there's a disadvantage if, let's say, you are a Black woman going into healthcare systems. There's a number of data. We've seen that with the recent pandemic, which disproportionately impacted certain groups more than others due to existing racial systemic issues within our healthcare system. So waking up as an equity-deserving community Going into work, being joyful, laughing at that joke, getting your work done, knowing that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much at times. And we've seen that with a lot of headlines circling within post-secondary education systems of certain leaders' experiences. Waking up and giving it all you got, even though the cards are stacked against you and you could just Google quickly the data around those experiences, is bravery in itself. Me waking up and being lighthearted and being open to navigating systems that have time and time again failed me, it, just my existence in itself is bravery. So now we're asking people on a day-to-day -day basis who have to endure such a bravery burden to be brave again and come into this space and reveal the most traumatic experiences you have in order for us to learn. Well, again, it's a complete disproportionate onus on equity-deserving communities in order to benefit dominant groups. Now here's the solution and this is the part where we're gonna get into 
what you can use. Accountables-based guidelines was created by inclusion factor because we realized that you can't just have well-meaning intentions. You have to align your well-meaning intentions with words and actions that align to that because that's the true test of commitment. That's the true test of allyship. We make sure that we use accountable space guidelines so there's not an unfair burden to be brave in this space. And we make sure that we have guidelines so that way if you show up to the space, you're gonna act a certain way in order to make sure that you are able to demonstrate your allyship in real time. And you're aligning your well-meaning intentions with actions. And those are the distinctions between safe spaces, brave spaces, and accountable spaces. I feel accountable spaces are much more uh, modern and much more applicable to today's spaces, and whether it be workplaces, communities, whatever it may be, versus safe and brave spaces, which to me personally, feel a bit more antiquated and again, create that really disproportionate onus on equity-deserving communities to be able to teach other individuals things in a way that's just not fair or equitable. Thank you so much for um, walking us through safe, brave, and accountable spaces and really differentiating, uh, you know, why the difference between all three and why it's important for us to move forward, right, into this accountable space. In your piece on Medium, you described um, accountable space guidelines and, and a quote said, accountability means being responsible for yourself your intentions, words, and actions. It means entering a space with good intentions, but understanding that aligning your intent with action is the true test of commitment. Can you speak a little bit more about, um, you know, what you were thinking when you came up with this very, just two powerful sentences? I was thinking that I, uh, as much as I appreciate well-meaning intentions, I need to see more. And I'm, I'm probably not the only person that's out there that thinks that way. Because if we solely lie on our intentions, as opposed to the impact of our behaviors and actions, then it, there's clearly a disproportionate uh, onus on dominant groups to say, well, I meant to do well. I'm sorry that offended you, but I mean, my intention was that I was supposed to make you smile. So, I mean, what's the big deal? As opposed to focusing on intention, shift the focus to what's the impact. So even though I meant well, I offended you and I'm sorry for that. And now I know better, I could do better. So I appreciate you letting me know that so that way I could align my words with my actions. And so that's what I was thinking when I was creating that, that article that has now kind of taken off to something beyond what I expected. I can imagine it's taken on a life of its own. <laughs> yeah, it's so how might this notion of accountability that is required in accountable spaces be introduced within a group that's already meeting on the regular? Many of our listeners are leaders or facilitators of community coalitions. So if they love the conversation here today and they go and link to the article, like how might they introduce this idea to the groups? So when I think of behavioral health prevention tactics, it could be everything from social connectedness, encouraging health-seeking behaviors, you know, recognizing stress and risks, you know, creating access to mental health treatment, whatever it may be, education around uh, physical or mental implications to health, whatever it may be. When we think about strategic planning around those tactics, how do we make sure that when we're planning those tactics out, 
the voices of the audiences we serve are within that strategic planning so that the tactics that we're developing resonates with the audiences we serve. And when we implement it, how do we make sure that whether it's, you know, access to certain things. So I'm going to give an example here. Um, I myself, I'm, I'm learning that uh, I want to start eating well and start working out as a part of my behavioral health prevention tactics for myself. Because I've realized when I do that, I'm at, you know, peak performance. My mental health is better. I, I'm just all around a better release. Just recently, I've decided that I want to incorporate more meatless meals into my dietary behaviors. Now, usually I would think steamed fish and asparagus, which doesn't get me too excited, to be honest. You know, I do it because, you know, I know what the outcome is, but do I get jazzed about it? I'm going to be honest, no. <laughs> Just as of late, when speaking to a dietitian that has incorporated equitable implementation into their tactics, they advise me that, hey, I know you're Ghanaian. I'm from Ghana, West Africa. Shout out to anyone that's from there. Um, just recently, they pointed me in direction of a Ghanaian vegetarian dietitian and meal prep company. <sighs> had no idea that even existed. I thought when it came to healthy eating, I had to stay within a Eurocentric perspective because that's just what I've seen. And being able to incorporate my indigenous food into my health goals in order to make sure that I am managing my own behavioral health uh, prevention tactics was something that just blew my mind. I thought, oh my gosh, here's DEI woven into a health prevention tactic that I didn't even think of. And so when I think about equal or uh, equitable implementation, how do we make sure that when we're implementing these tactics, we're hearing what potentially can be woven into these tactics that align with that person's identity. Now, I'm speaking from a cultural standpoint. This could apply from, let's say, from an indigenous standpoint, maybe as opposed to potentially having written recommendations, maybe it's orally provided. When it comes to people with disabilities, how are we thinking about accessibility around that? When we think of whatever the equity-deserving community may be, really making sure when it comes to implementation, how do we do it in a really equitable way? And this is where council spaces come in because we're being counseled to realize we serve these audiences. We cannot think that this group is a monolith. And we realize that there's unique needs and access for each group. So how do we make sure in strategic planning processes, we're including those voices so that way when we're developing tactics, we're being mindful of the audiences we serve. And from an implementation standpoint, how do we make sure that we're creating really unique accesses to those tactics? to make sure that we're meeting our outcomes and our vision of making sure that behavioral health prevention is not just for a select few, but for all the audiences we serve. And then last but not least, how do we make sure we measure this to make sure we're delivering impact? So do we speak to the communities we serve or do we speak to equity deserving groups to say we released this thing? We thought it was really great, but what do you think? That's where accountability spaces weave into the practice that your team as well as what your audiences do. Absolutely. Oh, Elise, I really appreciate your practical approach to some of these concepts and moving folks from idea to action. In our work with the center, we see the incredible work being done across Ohio in many settings, whether it's urban, suburban, or we have rural and or Appalachian communities. And as community coalitions are awarded grants, either from the state or federal government, they often have very specific requirements of representation from sectors across the community. 
And so they can include youth, parents, business, uh, media, school personnel, youth serving organizations. Um, so it could be organizationally or it can be, you know, by identity as well. So I'm just curious when uh, community leaders uh, who are leading these coalitions in Ohio are um, asked to meet representation requirements, what suggestions do you have for engaging individuals from racialized or equity deserving communities in meaningful representation? So the thing I would say is we need to shift our perspective from thinking that these groups are monolith. So I'm gonna use a, an example. I'm really practical and visual, so bear with me. Um, if we're thinking of, let's say, Black communities, I know we think that as, as a monolith. I'm African. I have Caribbean friends. I have friends that are from or African-American. Those cultures that I mentioned with those three groups are distinctly different. My experiences, even though I look like one of my Caribbean friends, if you looked at us, you think, okay, same group. There are absolutely different perspectives and understandings of how we perceive health, community, culture, behaviors, whatever it may be. And so the thing I'd say is really understanding that these equity-deserving groups are not a monolith. I'm going to be very controversial right now and advise that I don't believe in diversity targets. I, I truthfully think that it's misplaced because it creates a idea that if we have diverse people in the room, our job is done with DEI and we're good to go. I'm more of the perspective that diversity is about head count. Inclusion is about making those heads count. And it's very, very, there's a thin line of diversity quotas and tokenism in my perspective. Because we've seen time and time again when organizations bring in diverse talent based on a quota, those individuals, whether it's women, racialized, people with disabilities, LGBTQ, indigenous communities, they have to pay an inclusion tax. So they have to demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt, as if they're in court, <laughs> that they got hired because of their credibility and their skills and expertise, not because they were just fulfilling a quota. So I understand that these funding requirements, and I, I hope that eventually the system will change where there's much more of an emphasis of asking about inclusion indexes. So based on the individuals in your workforces, what's the inclusion index of those individuals feeling respected, valued, and heard? I hope we could shift to that, but I know that organizations are working on funding requirements. My only thing would, my caution would be, I understand you need to hire individuals based on certain requirements to get funding. When you have to hire those individuals, leaders need to thoughtfully ask themselves, what are we doing to create a workspace where we can actually retain those talents? And the timeline marker is usually three years. When you bring in a tokenized hire, and you just bring them in there for kind of create an illusion of inclusion, that we're doing the work because we have a woman on the board, or we're doing the work because we've got a black person on our team, or whatever it may be, that you are having a countdown now of that individual looking around to say, so let me see if what the words they sold me in the interview are actually true. Let's see if it's actually an inclusive organization. I will always caution individuals to make sure that when you're doing those diversity targets, alongside those diversity targets, you are having intentional, data-driven, measurable leadership competency programs around inclusion, because it starts at the top, and then across the board, creating training and development opportunities for inclusive workplaces. Because 
we try to make DEI selling this really kind of uh, kind of interchangeable terms when there's a successful cadence of what it looks like. Inclusion comes first. It's not field of dreams where you bring in diverse talent and magically inclusion appears. Inclusion comes first. You build the soil that helps grow equity and equitable systems where people have fair access to career advancement, promotion, talent development, whatever it may be. Last but not least, you'll automatically attract and retain talent because they realize when I come into this workforce, I could grow here. I contribute. My voice is valued. I'm heard. I'm respected. I'm not treated as, uh, you know, some type of tokenized hire that creates an illusion of inclusion to help demonstrate that the organization's doing the work when the real work has yet to be done. Absolutely. And I wonder if that stretches not only from the people doing the work, whether they are volunteers, like a lot of times in our coalition here, whether they're paid staff or whether they are the recipients or participants in the programming that's being um, delivered or executed. Absolutely. Well, Elise, I have had such a wonderful um, conversation and meet up with you today, and I would love for this um, conversation to go on, but we have reached the end of our time together. Um, we do ask every guest on our podcast a few rapid fire questions to close out our conversation. And so um, now's the time for yours. So when you're facilitating a session, do you prefer virtual or face-to-face? Ah. Uh. I prefer face-to-face, but I realize that virtual allows me to expand my reach in a way that helps me kind of expand my purpose of creating spaces where people are respected, valued, and heard. I love in-person, though, because there's an energy exchange in the room when we're talking about different concepts. I find that we get more vulnerable and have much more richer conversations when we're in person. Uh, but I do understand that virtual allows me to be in Ohio, Toronto, and New York in one day, like my schedule today. Absolutely. We're so grateful for your attendance. And I actually promised that I had thought about this question before um, we actually met. Um, so when going out to eat, and I know you talked about food references, um, do you prefer chain restaurants or independently run and operated? Independently run and operated. And preferably holes in the walls, because those are usually the best. And since you're coming to us live from Canada, if you had to, would you choose to wear only red or only white? (laughs) What a funny question. I would wear red. How befitting. It's like, I knew you were going to ask me that question. Look at that. I know. As soon as you jumped on, I was like, oh my gosh, because I try to think of these ahead of time. And sometimes I've known the guests and had a relationship for several years and we're just meeting for the first time today. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I know these questions were all going to be relative? We're synced up already. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Elise, for sharing your time, your expertise, and your experience with us. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion podcast, Prioritizing Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or set the podcast to automatically download on your favorite channel. To catch all the latest from the Center of Excellence, follow us on Instagram, X, Facebook, at Ohio Prevention COE. That's O-H Prevention COE or visit us at preventioncoe.ohio.gov to sign up for our monthly newsletter to hear about our latest offerings. 
as always, this podcast uh, could not be produced without the amazing uh, support of Sarah and Ivory behind the scenes. So I'm so grateful to the two of you for um, your role that you play in our uh, podcast presentation. This has been the Prioritizing Prevention Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, Apple Music, and many more. This program is funded by Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And for more information about us, please visit preventioncoe.ohio.gov. Thank you for listening.